I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But first, let's take some time here to relax. Take a nice, big stretch where you are and give your body permission to release any tension still lingering from the day. Breathe in through your nose and fill your tummy with a nice, big breath. Now sigh it all out. You have nothing left to do today but get a good night's sleep. In our last episode, Jane met her pupil, Adele, for the first time a ten-year-old little girl from France who is the ward of the proprietor of Thornfield. She was confident and bright, wanting to show Jane all of her accomplishments. Jane was given a tour of the house by Mrs. Fairfax, who took her up to the roof to see the view of the countryside. On their way back down, Jane heard a laugh which startled her, and Mrs. Fairfax explained it was likely one of the servants, Grace Poole. Grace was called for, and a red-haired, plain-looking woman appeared from a doorway and was told to be quiet. Months passed, and while Adele was making excellent progress, and Jane was becoming more settled in her new role, she did still yearn for more excitement. One afternoon, Mrs. Fairfax had a letter to post, and Jane volunteered to take it to the village for her. While on her way up the lane, she was met by a gentleman on a horse with a large dog trotting alongside. The path was icy, and the horse slipped, sending its rider tumbling to the ground. Jane ran back to check he was okay, and that is where we pick back up tonight, Jane offering to run back to Thornfield or on to the village to fetch help. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 12 continued. Something of daylight still lingered and the moon was waxing bright. I could see him plainly. His figure was enveloped in a riding cloak, fur-collared and steel-clasped. Its details were not apparent, but I traced the general points of middle height and considerable breadth of chest. He had a dark face with stern features and a heavy brow. His eyes and gathered eyebrows looked ireful and thwarted just now. He was past youth, but had not reached middle age. Perhaps he might be thirty-five. I felt no fear of him and but little shyness. Had he been a handsome, 
heroic-looking young gentleman, I should not have dared to stand thus, questioning him against his will and offering my services unasked. I had hardly ever seen a handsome youth, never in my life spoken to one. I had a theoretical reverence and homage for beauty, elegance, gallantry, fascination. But had I met those qualities incarnate in masculine shape, I should have known instinctively that they neither had nor could have sympathy with anything in me and should have shunned them as one would fire, lightning, or anything else that is bright but antipathetic. If even this stranger had smiled and been good-humoured to me when I addressed him, if he had put off my offer of assistance happily and with thanks, I should have gone on my way and not felt any vocation to renew inquiries. But the frown, the roughness of the traveller, set me at my ease. I retained my station when he waved me to go and announced, I cannot think of leaving you, sir, at so late an hour in this solitary lane till I see you are fit to mount your horse. He looked at me when I said this. He had hardly turned his eyes in my direction before. I should think you ought to be at home yourself, said he, if you have a home in this neighborhood. Where do you come from? From just below, I replied, and I am not at all afraid of being out late when it is moonlight. I will run over to Hay for you with pleasure, if you wish it. Indeed, I am going there to post a letter. You live just below. Do you mean at that house with the battlements? He asked, pointing to Thornfield Hall, on which the moon cast a hoary gleam, bringing it out distinct and pale from the woods that, by contrast with the western sky, now seemed one mass of shadow. Yes, sir, I answered. Whose house is it? He asked. Mr. Rochester's, I returned. Do you know Mr. Rochester? No, I have never seen him. He is not resident, then? No. Can you tell me where he is? I cannot. You are not a servant of the hall, of course. You are... He stopped, ran his eye over my dress, which, as usual, was quite simple. A black merino cloak, a black beaver bonnet, neither of them half fine enough for a lady's maid. He seemed puzzled to decide what I was. I helped him. I'm the governess. Ah, the governess, he repeated. Deuce take me if I had not forgotten. The governess. And again, my raiment underwent scrutiny. In two minutes, he rose from the stile. His face expressed pain when he tried to move. I cannot commission you to fetch help, he said. But you may help me a little yourself, if you will be so kind. Yes, sir. You have not an umbrella that I can use as a stick? No, I replied. Try to get hold of my horse's bridle and lead him to me. You are not afraid. I should have been afraid to touch a horse when alone, but when told to do it, I was disposed to obey. I put down my muff on the stile and went up 
to the tall steed. I endeavoured to catch the bridle, but it was a spirited thing and would not let me come near its head. I made effort on effort, though in vain. Meantime, I was mortally afraid of its trampling forefeet. The traveller waited and watched for some time, and at last he laughed. I see, he said. The mountain will never be brought to Mohammed, so all you can do is to aid Mohammed to go to the mountain. I must beg of you to come here. I came. Excuse me, he continued. Necessity compels me to make you useful. He laid a heavy hand on my shoulder and leaning on me with some stress, limped to his horse. Having once caught the bridle, he mastered it directly and sprang to his saddle, grimacing grimly as he made the effort, for it wrenched his sprain. Now, said he, releasing his underlip from a hard bite, just hand me my crop. It lies there under the hedge. I sought it and found it. Thank you, said he. Now make haste with the letter to Hay and return as fast as you can. A touch of a spurred heel made his horse first start and rear and then bound away. The dog rushed in his traces. All three vanished. Like he that in the wilderness the wild wind whirls away. I took up my muff and walked on. The incident had occurred and was gone for me. It was an incident of no moment, no romance, no interest in a sense, yet it marked with change one single hour of a monotonous life. My help had been needed and claimed. I had given it. I was pleased to have done something trivial, transitory though the deed was. It was yet an active thing, and I was weary of an existence all passive. The new face, too, was like a new picture introduced to the gallery of memory and it was dissimilar to all others hanging there. Firstly, because it was masculine, and secondly, because it was dark, strong, and stern. I had it still before me when I entered Hay and slipped the letter into the post office. I saw it as I walked fast downhill all the way home. When I came to the stile, I stopped a minute, looked round, and listened, with an idea that a horse's hoofs might ring on the causeway again, and that a rider in a cloak and a guy-trash-like Newfoundland dog might be again apparent. I saw only the hedge and a pollard willow before me, rising up still and straight to meet the moonbeams. I heard only the faintest waft of wind roaming fitful among the trees round Thornfield, a mile distant, and when I glanced down in the direction of the murmur, my eye, traversing the hall front, caught a light kindling in a window reminded me that I was late and I hurried on. I did not like re-entering Thornfield. To pass its threshold was to return to stagnation, to cross the silent hall, to ascend the darksome staircase, to seek my own lonely little room, and then to meet 
tranquil Mrs. Fairfax and spend the long winter evening with her and her only was to quell wholly the faint excitement wakened by my walk, to slip again over my faculties the viewless fetters of a uniform and too still existence of an existence whose very privileges of security and ease I was becoming incapable of appreciating. What good it would have done me at that time to have been tossed in the storms of an uncertain, struggling life and to have been taught by rough and bitter experience to long for the calm amidst which I now repined. Yes, just as much good as it would do a man tired of sitting still in a too easy chair to take a long walk. And just as natural was the wish to stir under my circumstances as it would be under his. I lingered at the gates. I lingered on the lawn. I paced backwards and forwards on the pavement. The shutters of the glass door were closed. I could not see into the interior, and both my eyes and spirit seemed drawn from the gloomy house, from the grey hollow filled with rayless cells as it appeared to me, to that sky expanded before me, a blue sea absolved from taint of cloud, the moon ascending it in solemn march, her orb seeming to look up as she left the hilltops from behind which she had come far and farther below her and aspired to the zenith, midnight dark in its fathomless depth and measureless distance, and for those trembling stars that followed her course, they made my heart tremble, my veins glow when I viewed them. Little things recall us to earth. The clock struck in the horn, that sufficed. I turned from moon and stars, opened a side door and went in. The hall was not dark, nor yet was it lit by the high-hung bronze lamp. A warm glow suffused both it and the lower steps of the oak staircase. This ruddy shine issued from the great dining room, whose two-leaved door stood open and showed a genial fire in the grate, glancing on marble hearth and brass fire irons and revealing purple draperies and polished furniture in the most pleasant radiance. It revealed, too, a group near the mantelpiece. I had scarcely caught it, and scarcely become aware of a cheerful mingling of voices, amongst which I seemed to distinguish the tones of Adele when the door closed. I hastened to Mrs. Fairfax's room. There was a fire there, too, but no candle, and no Mrs. Fairfax. Instead, all alone, sitting upright on the rug and gazing with gravity at the blaze, I beheld a great, black and white, long-haired dog, just like the guy trash of the lane. It was so like it that I went forward and said, Pilot, and the thing got up and came to me and snuffed me. I caressed him 
and he wagged his great tail, but he looked an eerie creature to be alone with, and I could not tell whence he had come. I rang the bell, for I wanted a candle, and I wanted, too, to get an account of this visitant. Leah entered. What dog is this? I asked her. He came with Master, she replied. With whom? With Master, Mr. Rochester. He has just arrived. Indeed. And is Mrs. Fairfax with him? I inquired. Yes, and Miss Adele. They're in the dining room, and John is gone for a surgeon. The master has had an accident. His horse fell, and his ankle is sprained. Did the horse fall in Hay Lane? I asked. Yes, coming down the hill. Slipped on some ice, she answered. Ah, Bring me a candle, will you, Leah? Leah brought it. She entered, followed by Mrs. Fairfax, who repeated the news, adding that Mr. Carter, the surgeon, was come and was now with Mr. Rochester. Then she hurried out to give orders about tea, and I went upstairs to take off my things. Chapter 13 Mr. Rochester, it seems by the surgeon's orders, went to bed early that night, nor did he rise soon the next morning. When he did come down, it was to attend to business. His agent and some of his tenants were arrived and waiting to speak with him. Adele and I had now to vacate the library. It would be in daily requisition as a reception room for callers. A fire was lit in an apartment upstairs, and there I carried our books and arranged it for the future schoolroom. I discerned in the course of the morning that Thornfield Hall was a changed place, No longer silent as a church, it echoed every hour or two to a knock at the door or a clang of the bell. Steps, too, often traversed the hall, and new voices spoke in different keys below. A rill from the outer world was flowing through it. It had a master, for my part. I liked it better. Adele was not easy to teach that day. She could not apply. She kept running to the door and looking over the banisters to see if she could get a glimpse of Mr. Rochester. Then she coined pretexts to go downstairs in order, as I shrewdly suspected, to visit the library where I knew she was not wanted. Then, when I got a little angry and made her sit still, she continued to talk incessantly of her ami, Monsieur Edouard Fairfax de Rochester, as she dubbed him. I had not before heard his given name, and to conjecture what presence he had brought her, for it appears he had intimated the night before that when his luggage came from Millcote, there would be found amongst it a little box in whose contents she had an interest. And that must mean, said she in French, there will be a gift in there for me. And maybe for you too, miss. Monsieur spoke of you. He asked me the name of my governess and whether she was not a small person, rather thin and a little pale. I said yes, because it is true, isn't it, miss? 
I and my pupil dined as usual in Mrs. Fairfax's parlour. The afternoon was wild and snowy, and we passed it in the schoolroom. At dark, I allowed Adele to put away books and work and to run downstairs, for from the comparative silence below and from the succession of appeals to the doorbell, I conjectured that Mr. Rochester was now at liberty. Left alone, I walked to the window, but nothing was to be seen thence. Twilight and snowflakes together thickened the air and hid the very shrubs on the lawn. I let down the curtain and went back to the fireside. In the clear embers, I was tracing a view not unlike a picture I remembered to have seen of the castle of Heidelberg on the Rhine when Mrs. Fairfax came in, breaking up by her entrance the fiery mosaic I had been piecing together and scattering to some heavy, unwelcome thoughts that were beginning to throng on my solitude. Mr. Rochester would be glad if you and your pupil would take tea with him in the drawing room this evening, said she. He has been so much engaged all day that he could not ask to see you before. When is his tea time? I inquired. Oh, it's six o'clock. He keeps early hours in the country. You had better change your frock now. I will go with you and fasten it. Here is a candle. Is it necessary to change my frock? I asked. Yes, you had better. I always dress for the evening when Mr. Rochester is here, she replied. This additional ceremony seemed somewhat stately, however... I repaired to my room and, with Mrs. Fairfax's aid, replaced my black stuffed dress by one of black silk, the best and the only additional one I had, except one of light grey, which, in my lowered notions of dress, I thought too fine to be worn, except on first-rate occasions." Want a brooch, said Mrs. Fairfax. I had a single little pearl ornament which Miss Temple gave me as a parting keepsake. I put it on, and then we went downstairs. Unused as I was to strangers, it was rather a trial to appear thus formally summoned in Mr. Rochester's presence. I let Mrs. Fairfax precede me into the dining room and kept in her shade as we crossed that apartment and, passing the arch, whose curtain was now dropped, entered the elegant recess beyond. Two wax candles stood lighted on the table and two on the mantelpiece basking in the light and heat of a superb fire, lay Pilate. Adele knelt near him. Half reclined on a couch appeared Mr. Rochester, his foot supported by the cushion. He was looking at Adele and the dog. The fire shone full on his face. I knew my traveller, with his broad and jetty eyebrows, his square forehead made squarer by the horizontal sweep of his black hair. I recognized his decisive nose, more remarkable for character than beauty, his full nostrils denoting, I thought, Chola, his grim mouth, 
chin and jaw. Yes, all three were very grim and no mistake. His shape, now divested of cloak, I perceived harmonized him in squareness with his physiognomy. I suppose it was a good figure in the athletic sense of the term. Broad-chested and thin-flanked, though neither tall nor graceful. Mr. Rochester must have been aware of the entrance of Mrs. Fairfax and myself, but it appeared that he was not in the mood to notice us, for he never lifted his head as we approached. Here is Miss Eyre, sir, said Mrs. Fairfax in her quiet way. He bowed, still not taking his eyes from the group of the dog and child. Let Miss Eyre be seated, said he and there was something in the forced, stiff bow, in the impatient yet formal tone, which seemed further to express, what the deuce is it to me whether Miss Eyre is here or not? At this moment, I'm not disposed to accost her. I sat down, quite disembarrassed, A reception of finished politeness would probably have confused me. I could not have returned or repaid it by answering grace and elegance on my part, but harsh caprice laid me under no obligation. On the contrary, a decent quiescence under the freak of manner gave me the advantage. Besides, The eccentricity of the proceeding was piquant. I felt interested to see how he would go on. He went on as a statue would, that is, he neither spoke nor moved. Mrs. Fairfax seemed to think it necessary that someone should be amiable, and she began to talk, kindly as usual, and as usual, rather trite. She condoled with him on the pressure of business he had had all day, on the annoyance it must have been to him with that painful sprain. Then she commended his patience and perseverance in going through with it. Madam, I should like some tea, was the sole rejoinder she got. She hastened to ring the bell, and when the tray came, she proceeded to arrange the cups, spoons, etc., with assiduous celerity. I and Adele went to the table, but the master did not leave his couch. "'Will you hand Mr. Rochester's cup?' said Mrs. Fairfax to me. "'Adele might perhaps spill it.' I did as requested. As he took the cup from my hand, Adele, thinking the moment propitious for making a request in my favor, said, Isn't there, sir, a gift, a cadeau, for Miss Eyre in your little chest? Who talks of cadeau? said he gruffly. Did you expect a present, Miss Eyre? Are you fond of presents? said he, and searched my face with eyes that I saw were dark, irate, and piercing. I hardly know, sir. I have little experience of them. They are generally thought pleasant things. Generally thought. But what do you think? he asked. I should be obliged to take time, sir, before I could give you an answer worthy of your acceptance. The present has many faces to it, has it not? And one should consider all before pronouncing an opinion as to its nature. Miss Eyre, 
You are not so unsophisticated as Adele. She demands a cadeau clamorously the moment she sees me. You beat around the bush. Because I have less confidence in my desserts than Adele has. She can prefer the claim of an old acquaintance and the right, too, of custom. For she says you have always been in the habit of giving her playthings. But if I had to make a case, I should be puzzled, since I am a stranger and have done nothing to entitle me to an acknowledgement. Oh, don't fall back on over-modesty, said he. I have examined Adele and find you have taken great pains with her. She's not bright. She has no talents. Yet in a short time, she has made much improvement. Sir, you have now given me my cadeau. I'm obliged to you. Tis the reward teachers most covet, praise of their pupils' progress. <laughs> said Mr. Rochester, and he took his tea in silence. Come to the fire, said the master when the tray was taken away and Mrs. Fairfax had settled into a corner with her knitting, while Adele was leading me by the hand round the room, showing me the beautiful books and ornaments on the consoles and chiffonniers. We obeyed as in duty bound. Adele wanted to take a seat on my knee, but she was ordered to amuse herself with Pilot. You have been a resident in my house three months? inquired Mr. Rochester. Yes, sir, I answered. And you came from... from Lowood School? Ah, a charitable concern. How long were you there? Eight years. Eight years. You must be tenacious of life. I thought half the time in such a place would have done up any constitution. No wonder you have rather the look of another world. I marveled where you had got that sort of face. When you came on me in the Hay Lane last night, I thought unaccountably of fairy tales and had half a mind to demand whether you had bewitched my horse. I'm not sure yet. Who are your parents? I have none. Nor ever had, I suppose. Do you remember them? He asked. No, I replied. I thought not. And so you were waiting for your people when you sat on that stile. For whom, sir? For the men in green. It was a proper moonlight evening for them. Did I break through one of your fairy rings that you spread that accursed ice on the causeway? I shook my head. The men in green all forsook England a hundred years ago, said I, speaking as seriously as he had done. And not even in Hay Lane or the fields about it could you find a trace of them. I don't think either summer or harvest or winter moon will ever shine on their revels more. Mrs. Fairfax had dropped her knitting and with raised eyebrows seemed wondering what sort of talk this was. Well, resumed Mr. Rochester, if you disown parents... You must have some sort of kinsfolk, uncles and aunts. No, none that I ever saw, I replied. And your home? I have none. Where do your brothers and sisters live? I have no brothers or sisters. Who recommended you to come here? I advertised and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advertisement. Yes, said the good lady, 
who now knew what ground we were upon. And I am daily thankful for the choice Providence led me to make. Miss Eyre has been an invaluable companion to me, and a kind and careful teacher to Adele. Don't trouble yourself to give her a character, returned Mr. Rochester. Eulogiums will not bias me. I shall judge for myself. She began my felling horse. Sir, said Mrs. Fairfax, I have her to thank for this sprain, Mr. Rochester returned. The widow looked bewildered. Miss Eyre, have you ever lived in a town? He asked me. No, sir, I answered. Have you seen much society? None but the pupils and teachers of Lowood, and now the inmates of Thornfield. Have you read much? Only such books as came in my way, and they have not been numerous or very learned. You have lived the life of a nun, said he. No doubt you are well drilled in religious forms. Brocklehurst, who I understand directs Lowood as a parson, is he not? Yes, sir, I replied. And you girls probably worshipped him as a convent full of religiouses would worship their director. No, said I. You are very cool. No. What? A novice not worship her priest? That sounds blasphemous. I disliked Mr. Brocklehurst, I replied, and I was not alone in the feeling. He is a harsh man, at once pompous and meddling. He cut off our hair, and for economy's sake, bought us bad needles and thread with which we could hardly sew. That was very false economy, remarked Mrs. Fairfax, who now and again caught the drift of the dialogue. And was that the head and front of his offending? demanded Mr. Rochester. He starved us, when he had the sole superintendence of the provision department before the committee was appointed, I answered. And he bored us with long lectures once a week and with evening readings from books of his own indicting about sudden deaths and judgments which made us afraid to go to bed. What age were you when you went to Lowood? About ten. And you stayed there eight years. You are now, then, eighteen? I assented. Arithmetic, you see, is useful, said he. Without its aid, I should hardly have been able to guess your age. It is a point difficult to fix where the features and countenance is so much at variance in your case. And now, what did you learn at Lowood? Can you play? A little, I replied. Of course, that is the established answer. Go into the library, I mean, if you please. Excuse the tone of my command. I'm used to saying, do this, and it is done cannot alter my customary habits for one new inmate. Go then into the library. Take a candle with you. Leave the door open. Sit down to the piano and play a tune. I departed, obeying his directions. Enough, he called out in a few minutes. You play a little... I see, like any other English schoolgirl, perhaps rather better than some, not well. I closed the piano and returned. Mr. Rochester continued. Adele showed me some sketches this morning, which she said were yours. 
I don't know whether they were entirely of your doing. Probably a master aided you. No, indeed, I interjected. Ah, that prick's pride. Well, fetch me your portfolio if you can vouch for its contents being original. But don't pass your word unless you are certain. I can recognize patchwork. Then I will say nothing, and you shall judge for yourself, sir, I replied. I brought the portfolio from the library. Approach the table, said he, and I wheeled it to his couch. Adele and Mrs. Fairfax drew near to see the pictures. No crowding, said Mr. Rochester. Take the drawings from my hand as I finish with them, but don't push your faces up to mine. He deliberately scrutinized each sketch and painting. Three he laid aside. The others, when he had examined them, he swept from him. Take them off to the other table, Mrs. Fairfax, said he, and look at them with Adele. You, glancing at me, resume your seat and answer my questions. I perceive those pictures were done by one hand. Was that hand yours? Yes, I answered. And when did you find time to do them? They have taken much time and some thought. I did them in the last two vacations I spent at Lowood, when I had no other occupation. Where did you get your copies? He asked. Out of my head? I replied. That head I see now on your shoulders. Yes, sir. Has it other furniture of the same kind within? I should think it may have. I should hope better, said I. He spread the pictures before him and again surveyed them alternately. While he is so occupied, I will tell you, reader, what they are. And first, I must premise that they are nothing wonderful. The subjects had indeed risen vividly on my mind as I saw them with the spiritual eye before I attempted to embody them. They were striking, but my hand would not second my fancy, and in each case it had wrought out but a pale portrait of the thing I had conceived. These pictures were in watercolors. The first represented clouds, low and livid, rolling over a swollen sea. All the distance was in eclipse. So too was the foreground, or rather the nearest billows, for there was no land. One gleam of light lifted into relief a half-submerged mass on which sat a cormorant, dark and large, with wings flecked with foam. Its beak held a gold bracelet set with gems that I had touched with as brilliant tints as my palette could yield, and as glittering distinctness as my pencil could impart. Sinking below the bird and mast, a drowned corpse glanced through the green water a fair arm was the only limb clearly visible whence the bracelet had been washed or torn. The second picture contained for foreground only the dim peak of a hill with grass and some leaves slanting as if by a breeze. Beyond and above spread an expanse of sky dark blue as at twilight. Rising into the sky was a woman's shape to the bust, 
portrayed in tints as dusk and soft as I could combine. The dim forehead was crowned with a star. The liniments below were seen as through the suffusion of vapor. The eyes shone dark and wild. The hair streamed shadowy like a beamless cloud torn by storm or by electric travail. On the neck lay a pale reflection like moonlight, the same faint luster touched the train of thin clouds from which rose and bowed this vision of the evening star. The third showed the pinnacle of an iceberg piercing a polar winter sky. A muster of northern lights reared their dim lances, close serried along the horizon, throwing these into distance, rose in the foreground a head, a colossal head, inclined towards the iceberg and resting against it. Two thin hands joined under the forehead and supporting it drew up before the lower features a sable veil, a brow quite bloodless, white as bone, and an eye hollow and fixed, blank of meaning but for the glassiness of despair alone were visible. Above the temples, amidst wreathed turban folds of black drapery, vague in its character and consistency as cloud, gleamed a ring of white flame, gemmed with sparkles of a more lurid tinge. This pale crescent was the likeness of a kingly crown. What it diademed was the shape which shape had none. Were you happy when you painted these pictures? Asked Mr. Rochester presently. I was absorbed, sir. Yes, and I was happy, I replied. To paint them, in short, was to enjoy one of the keenest pleasures I have ever known. That is not saying much. Your pleasures, by your own account, have been few. But I dare say you did exist in a kind of artist's dreamland while you blended and arranged these strange tints. Did you sit at them long each day? I had nothing else to do, because it was the vacation. I sat at them from morning till noon, and from noon till night. The length of the midsummer days favoured my inclination to apply. And you felt self-satisfied with the result of your ardent labours? Far from it. I was tormented by the contrast between my idea and my handiwork. In each case, I had imagined something which I was quite powerless to realize. Not quite. You have secured the shadow of your thought, but no more, probably. You had not enough of the artist's skill and science to give it full being. Yet the drawings are, for a schoolgirl, peculiar. As to the thoughts... They are elfish. These eyes in the evening star you must have seen in a dream. How could you make them look so clear and yet not at all brilliant? For the planet above quells their rays. And what meaning is that in their solemn depth? And who taught you to paint wind? There is a high gale in that sky and on this hilltop. Where did you see Latmus? For that is Latmus. There. Put the drawings away. 
I had scarce tied the strings of the portfolio when, looking at his watch, he said abruptly, It is nine o'clock. What are you about, Miss Eyre, to let Adele stay up so long? Take her to bed. Adele went to kiss him before quitting the room. He endured the caress, but scarcely seemed to relish it more than Pilot would have done, nor so much. I wish you all a good night now, said he, making a movement of the hand towards the door, in a token that he was tired of our company and wished to dismiss us. Mrs. Fairfax folded up her knitting. I took my portfolio. We curtsied to him, received a frigid bow in return, and so withdrew.